welcome to this podcast. I'm Anju Kangurde, Executive Editor for the Asia-Pacific Region with Script and Pink Sheet. And today I'm joined by Jonathan Hunt, Managing Director and CEO of Sinjin International. Sinjin, as many of you know, is a leading contract research, development and manufacturing organization and a listed arm of Biocon. Sinjin's solutions and services span the entire discovery, development, and manufacturing value chain. It has 400 plus active clients. In fact, it counts 13 of the top 15 companies as its pharma companies as its clients. The company's model provides for a combination of dedicated research sites for Amgen, Baxter, and Bristol-Myers-Squibb, while also working with emerging biopharma pursuing cutting-edge science, as well as with several other multinationals like GSK, Zoetis, and Merck KGA. Emerging biopharma, as many of you know, represents over 60% of industry's total development pipeline. Jonathan himself comes from AstraZeneca, where he's held leadership positions in Austria and India. Now, Sinjin's sector expertise spans pharmaceuticals, biotech, nutrition, animal health, consumer goods, and specialty chemicals. So clearly not all eggs in one basket. Now, we're going to talk about a host of issues, including some emerging trends, the now and next for CRDMOs, amid what we're seeing, geopolitical headwinds, the kind of capital-constrained operating environment for emerging biopharma, where many companies are kind of keen to rein in cash burn, and also some big pharma streamlining that's underway. All of that when biopharma is perhaps in one of its most exciting phases amid this confluence of technology, biotechnology, and then all of us know AI, Gen AI. So lots to discuss. Thank you, Jonathan, for your time today. And welcome to this podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be joining you. Okay, so, uh, you know, let's rewind a bit and begin with some of the broad and evolving trends. We've in the past seen uh, biopharma actually prefer full service outsourcing to CROs. And then some of the larger companies actually stepped back a bit, taking some of the services in-house, while emerging biopharma typically really needs CROs for the full suite of services. Could you take us through, you know, how the pandemic actually impacted the segment, where we are today and possibly where we are headed, especially with a lot of this exciting work around new modalities coming from the small and emerging biotechs, not necessarily big pharma. And this we're also seeing alongside, you know, job cuts happening at some of the big CRDMOs, some official, uh, Fujifilm, Irene, Scientific, all of that. So some of your views on that. Oh, thanks, Anjan. I mean, there's everything in the kitchen sink in in the question there. There's multiple parts that we could pick up. Um, if start just with the sort of overall trend, where did the industry I'm in come from? The notion that you would outsource something. 
there's a question I often have with um, or a discussion I often have with some of our investors. You know, when does a fund manager stop becoming a fund manager? Is it when they no longer do the stock picking or the investment decisions themselves? But in that industry, you've seen this balanced um, sort of approach uh, appear. And that was always the existential question. You know, were you actually a pharmaceutical company or a biotech company if you weren't doing all of the science yourself? And certainly over the course of my career, I've now been in the industry for coming on for 35 years, you've, you've seen that uh, evolve. You don't have to do everything um, in-house. Um, if anything, there are real benefits to having a very, very broad connect to the scientific waterfront to be able to um, access pockets of innovation and science the world over, rather than just trying to do everything in your own labs. And you've seen that evolve. It started, uh, as in many industries, the outsourcing started doing the things that were sim simple, well understood, repeatable, often that could um, you could drive out cost or drive up sophistication and service through either scale benefits or operating cost arbitrage. So you've seen it and, and India's led the world in things like the IT services outsourcing, um, getting back office IT tasks done. And, and our industry is not dissimilar. We started off in chemistry and we started off doing the well understood everyday basic elements of chemistry that that's needed to take science forward. Remember, there's a massive difference between a brilliant you know, Nobel Prize winning idea and scientific insight and a drug or a medicine that's actually in the hands of a patient at the moment they need it. It's an application of science that connects those two ends. They may be a decade apart from first idea through to the regulators approving a product. And as you go through it, it becomes more industrial and more applied, going from ideation all the way through uh, to the patient. But a drug that's only an idea rather than one, a medicine that's in a patient's hands, doesn't have a lot of value. It's about the impact you have on the patients. So the industry's really grown up about that. Um, starting doing individual uh, uh, elements of science, whether it's chemistry or biology or DMPK at the discovery side, or into formulation, CMC development in the development space, through into manufacturing. Um, uh, and bit by bit as an industry, our sophistication has gone up. We've integrated those things. And in in many cases, the leading companies, and I would, you know, with some modesty say Syngene is joining that group of world leaders um, and operating at the very highest standards and the broadest scale and scope, uh, now do science as well as any of their customers. We just have a different operating model. And increasingly, we're starting to do it at a scale and a breadth that few of our customers can match. So you, you talked a little bit in your introductory comments about uh, big pharma, big biotech and, and startup um, companies. You know, our smallest client is a, it, it, it literally is a one woman virtual biotech uh, where she's the lead scientist and also the CEO, but pretty much handles everything in there. And her business is exclusively working through collaborations and partnerships. It's a virtual model through to some of the biggest biotech and pharma companies in the world. We're now starting to match 
even the biggest company scale and scope. And you see that the, the largest of the services businesses may be going through a tipping point where we operate on a scale um, that surpasses even that of our clients. Why is that important? It creates learning loops. It creates the ability. The more you do something, the better you can get. You start to create feedback loops. And um, as we touch on later in our conversation, hopefully around big data, AI, machine learning, simple truth in that. Whoever's got the best algorithm and feeds it the most data will tend to outperform and outlearn everybody else. And CROs, CDMO businesses like ours are increasingly sitting on very large data land, land banks of scientific scientific information. So it's an area that plays to our strengths as we as we build scale, build um, scientific knowledge. So, so that's that's some of the big picture things. You know, the, the industry is becoming interwoven um, with its clients. In many ways, we're becoming indistinguishable. If you if you objectively came down from another planet and just looked at a, a client and a CRO, just at their capabilities, how they're organized, the quality standards, the way we operate, the way we make decisions, they're superimposable. We just have become our clients. We just have a different monetization model. We create IP for others rather than we necessarily have to own the product IP. We create and innovate products. We don't necessarily take those to the market and to the patient. So there's a convert there's a convergence there scientifically. Um, I think some of the the sort of meta trends that are going on, and you mentioned the pandemic, for many industries around the world, the learning was one of a, a, around supply chains and operating resilience. Um, over the last 20, 30 years, you've seen a, a globalization of supply chains. You've seen an increasing optimization of them, um, interconnected through interconnectedness through things like containerization of shipping, the ability to order something on Amazon, you know, other platforms are available, but a click of a button in the morning and get it delivered the same day. And a supply chain that's allowed that to be connected all the way through to, you know, manufacturing plants throughout Asia that have then delivered goods into the uh, into Western markets. And we're seeing similar sort of things in pharmaceuticals and in biotechnology, that globalization. One of the challenges and one of the insights and I think learnings from the pandemic is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. If you're overstretched and over optimized on your supply chain, it it brings fantastic cost optimization and efficiency when it works, but it doesn't always have resilience built in. And sometimes, you know, du duplication, uh, that little bit of slack in the system is the thing that makes you resilient to big external shocks like uh, the pandemic. So one of the learnings that I, I'm seeing with our customers and you can see them actively pursuing it's not a sort of um, I'm not a big believer in this rhetoric that uh, the, the job and the work needs to come out of Asia and we're taking all of that home. What I actually see is people rebalancing their operating footprints and their supply chains to be much more evenly balanced around the world and much more dual source. So there's, there's a phrase at the moment, you know, everybody asks about China plus one. 
that's really just dual sourcing. It's about the ability to rebalance um, so that you've got that that resilience in all parts. So some of the learnings for us as a company, we operated, uh, we were open, we were doing work every single day of the pandemic, barring about four or five days at the very beginning, which we took to reorganize ourselves uh, uh, around health and safety and the EHS dynamics, keeping our staff safe at work making sure that we had zoning in place, that we put good medical care. We ran a vaccination program for our staff um, and we made sure that, you know, coming to work uh, was as safe as it possibly could be. But we were at work in the labs, in the development suites, in the manufacturing plants um, pretty much every day of the pandemic. And we grew the business. Pretty good growth, growth through that period. We added clients. We added over a thousand staff um during the two years of the pandemic and to some extent that was uh, it, that highlights my point about resilience uh we were open and operating and taking our science our clients science forward at a period for many of them were working from home or um it, you know not being able to come into their own laboratories so it kept it, it's a good thing i think at a societal level it kept the science moving forward. It gets some. It kept some key projects uh, moving towards the clinic and ultimately to the patients, and and that's one of the benefits of being dual source, globalized, and in partnerships. So a lot in there. Yeah. So I mean, really, thank you for that big picture assessment. And you know, you touched upon a whole range of areas in depth. Uh, but if I could just loop in your latest Q2 earnings, where you noted that for discovery services where global demand remained generally healthy, you're seeing the US-based biotech segment showing some signs of slowed growth year on year. Just, un just want to understand from your perspective, do you see this kind of capital constraint environment prolong where EBP, the emerging biopharma companies may further tighten spending or is it just a kind of phase that we need to get through? Oh, I think it's a phase that, you know, this too shall pass. Um, go back to the fundamentals that there's whatever, eight billion plus people on the planet. We're aging. Uh, d disease and disease burdens have not been fully addressed. There are many, many uh, opportunities to improve medicines, medicine, medical care. There's some great innovation and in technology coming through. I just don't see um, a long term reversal in the trend that society, each one of us individually with our own sort of families, our own health, um, with where we want governments, where they fund health care through our tax dollars or with our own discretionary expenditure. I just don't see people demanding continued improvement in health care. So it's a temp it's a temporary um change in the funding environment but it's again got to put some perspective around it it's it's largely affecting biotech it's largely affecting biotech in the us um and it's trying to find a um a, a new level i would also look at it if you were to plot a five and ten year funding chart for the amount of capital that's gone into you know vc backed and entrepreneurial biotech funding over the last five and 10 years. See it for what it is. We're coming off a once in a lifetime, once in a generational high. That actually is quite um, a, a, a logical response as the world faced an existential threat from a pandemic. 
more of society's resources, more of the capital went towards scientific ideas. Most of those, a lot of those in, in the COVID space and uh, associated um, uh, sort of treatments, but also into all health, all manner of healthcare. That seems to be quite a logical response. Interest rates were incredibly low at the time. Quantitative easing was still playing out from governments. Both of those trends as we've come out of the pandemic have regressed, have gone in the other direction. Interest rates have shot up around the world. So the cost of money um, has gone up. And at the same time, we've come off this high pandemic surge in company formation, foundation and capital. The numbers look to me to be not far off where we were in sort of 2016, 17, 18, um, a time period where we didn't think it was, you know, it was underfunded. So it, it's finding a new normal. I think it will work its way through the system. I'm not brave enough to tell you how long it'll take. I don't think anybody can call that, but I'm fairly sure it will. What it what it is doing though is it's creating some sub dynamics that are quite interesting. Those companies that have got funding are becoming increasingly sensitive about how they eke that out, how they slow their burn rate, how they get best value. So there is an element of price sensitivity, price negotiation being a bit more heightened. But it's not a bad environment for a company like ours. I mean, we have a, a largely Asian Indian operating base that does give us an awful lot of operating cost advantage, particularly in the bits of our industry that are very labor intensive, like discovery science, where you need great scientific talent. It's scientists, masters and PhD scientists in the labs doing the work. So we've got a relative cost advantage. Um, and now is a time where the market, those that are well funded, value that ever more. So you know, one of the propositions that we have for client uh, for clients, particularly in the US, it, um, make your funding go further. If you if you work with a company like uh, Syngene compared to doing that work in house, we can make your money go two, three times as far. So that so there's a positive wrapped inside what at, at a at a top level looks to be a a, a negative trend. For those businesses that are running out of funding, and that's where you're starting to see some of the retooling, restructuring, job layoffs. Um, it's a trend we've seen before, and I'm sure it'll work through the system. There is another pocket to the industry. I mean, th th there are many, many large and medium sized bio and pharma companies are not reliant on that venture fund funding for their source of investment. They're largely self-funding, self-sustaining. They've got big balance sheets, deep pockets, strong cash flows. Um, so that's a segment that's pretty immune to that dynamic. Uh, and they're spending money and they're looking to to rebalance. They're the trend for, for them, I see, is much more around this reaction to supply chain resilience, partnership resilience. Where can they access great science in the world? And, and, and they're not bound by particular countries or regions. They're very global in their outlook. Where can we rebalance our supply chain? So this China plus one is real. It's it, it's a more glacial trend. It's solid and going in one direction than very quickly. That reflects, I think, often 
some of the underlying dynamics in the biopharma industry were highly regulated very very conservative in the pace at which we drive change quite rightly because you've always got to think about quality standards and the impact on patients so if you go in a direction go there steadily and with real insight but you are seeing a rebalancing and i think india um is one of the countries and one uh, that's going to benefit from that and i'm hoping that as a leading company in that uh, uh, marketplace will be well positioned to take advantage of it. Okay, uh, I mean, thank you for that. So I just, I mean, it syncs beautifully with the next uh, question that I had, uh, you know, where I just want to understand. So when you're dealing with these uh, emerging biopharma and kind of helping them manage the cash burn in you know, some way, uh, do you, does Sinjin offer more flexible and uh, milestone or outcome-based contract arrangements for some of these high-stake projects with limited resources where, you know, many of the no-go or go decisions need to be made along the way. I'm kind of asking you this because a McKinsey study some uh, a year ago actually said that uh, some of the smaller biotech firms, they, they kind of feel underserved by CROs in some, you know, some areas. Yeah, I, I mean, we do. It's one of many engagement models and ways of sort of working with us that we offer from uh, dedicated teams, uh, FTE contracts through to, you know, fee for service, classically sort of payment per project through to integrating a number of steps um, at the sort of highest level of sophistication. We'll now sit down with the CSO um, uh, of a venture uh, back company and we'll take over all aspects of a project. We can take it from the early stages of discovery all the way through to a candidate drug. Um, we have a, a, a platform called Synvent, which is our integrated drug discovery model. And we can do that, whether it's for them funding it through uh, you know, normal cash payments or whether it's a hybrid of that plus some sort of success fee. And we'll, we'll, we'll even look um, on occasions at putting in some sort of equity into those models. So there's a full range. Um, okay. At the same time, you've got to remember what you strategically are trying to achieve and what you what your role in the value chain is. CROs are there to take science forward and deliver service. We're not necessarily a surrogate for venture capital investment. Um, we're not there to replace the bank, as it were. So I, sometimes it's frustrating if you can't get the funding you want from the capital markets, you might look to your suppliers to fund it. But I'm not sure that's always necessarily in alignment of our strategic missions or capabilities. We're there to take their science forward, not necessarily replace their own investors and shareholders. But we will take some skin in the game um, uh, you know, for, for some of the projects. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, so if I can just move to the other side, the big pharma a bit, I mean, and uh, th there's been a very interesting uh, you know, project that you handled. You played a, sig played a significant role in the development of Amgen's lung cancer therapy, Lumacras. Uh, could you share some highlights of you know, how that went, perhaps some of the challenges along the way? Maybe in areas that, you know, I mean, there were some uh, read some comments by Anjan saying, you know, they were highly appreciative of uh, the efforts by Sinjin in areas like materials, starting materials, impurities. Could you take us yeah. through some of that? A, a little. I mean, I need to be careful in that so much as there's a, I, I think it's for Anjan to talk about, 
you know, their own project. There's an element there of proprietary insight. And, and also, I think they deserve the credit. I mean, that that was a, 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 a drug that's a first in class. Uh, it's a f- fantastic piece of science and a fantastic piece of drug discovery development problem solving uh, uh, along the way. Um, there's been others that have come into that um, space and it, it's a hot area of science. Let me talk about it more broadly. I think there's two themes in there. But the first one is that the ability in within a partnership, um, like the strategic relationship we have with Amgen, to dial up and dial down resource very, very quickly when your client's project needs that acceleration and that push. Um, And that's one of the things that's very beneficial around this, what's now become the industry sort of standard hybrid way of working. We don't operate as outsource providers when we're doing it at the very best. We just become an integral part of whatever the science team is. I often will, will join project level meetings with with our clients from around the world and it's indistinguishable you don't know who works for which companies you just not you just know what role that individual has on that particular scientific project and it becomes indistinguishable it becomes a one team approach so i think there's an element there that um really helped um amgen was the ability to add resource, accelerate the science when it's need, when it was needed and just give them that that sort of um, resilience. The other bit, which I think speaks um, to the, the development over the last five years or so of Syngene, is the technological capabilities, the, the sophistication that we now have in our own scientists and, and uh, in our own abilities. We're, we are becoming increasingly modality and technology neutral. And what I mean by that is um, we're over 8,000 staff, more than 6,000 scientists. That's a big research and development organization by any standard in the industry. There are very, very few companies operate at that scale. And then within the scope that allows us to invest in a very broad range of scientific capabilities. So we start to be able to offer up to our clients the best technological tool for their their unique scientific problem. Um, There's an expression to to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, And you need to be careful when you're operating at a smaller scale and scope that you solve all of your problems through the techniques that you're most comfortable with. The, the, the leading companies in the industry on the service side, and I think Syngene you know, is, is amongst those, operate at such a scale and such a breadth of technology that we start to be able to have the full toolkit and therefore you become more selective in your approach to finding solutions and you're better able to find that unique right approach for each scientific problem. Um, and that mirrors to some extent the strategies that you see in the very biggest of the bio bio um, pharma companies of having that ability to prosecute and attack scientific problems with the right tool every time. So those were the two, those are the two sort of general things I would take out of the Lumacrats and sort of okay. general. 
Yeah, so you, you mentioned this bit about, you know, dial up and dial down. So I'm just a bit curious. So we just saw the FDA's Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee recently conclude that the progression-free survival endpoint in the code break 200 confirmatory trial for Lumopras could not be reliably interpreted. And so, I mean, Amgen is planning further trials, you know, code break 202, code break uh, 300, etc. So when things like this happen, is there a further role somewhere for the CRDMO? And as you said, dial up, dial down quickly. There, there, there might be in, in the industry, specifically with our relationship with the, with them. What you what you describe there sounds to me more like a clinical research uh, challenge okay. to go back and rerun a different study, um, retest in patients. That's not necessarily core to Syngene's capabilities. That we don't help ourselves in the industry with an overlapping set of alphabeti spaghetti, uh, three letter <laughs> abbreviations, clinical research, contract research, C CDMOs, CRDMOs, CMOs. Uh, core to what we do is the, the, the hard science in the labs, the development work in the development suites and laboratories clinical scale manufacturing through to commercial scale manufacturing. We do some in India of translational science, BABE studies to support the, uh, the, the largely the biosimilar and bio um, and the generics industry, but we're not really a clinical CRO. Okay. Right. So let's now just move to the, you know, the big emerging opportunity that we're seeing in the biologic space. Uh, there's growing interest and competition in the CDMO space, especially for biologics. We've even heard Indian peers like Dr. Reddy's, et cetera, you know, spelling out some ambitions there. Plus, we've seen the Koreans really gear up in that area. I, I mean, they're already very strong. And uh, Sinjin recently acquired a Stellis Biopharma site, which you expect to apparently repurpose to manufacture monoclonal antibodies. What's the kind of ramp up that you're looking of, looking at in this space? And what would you say sets Sinjin apart from, say, you know, a Korean competitor as a reliable and a frontline development and manufacturing services provider? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would start with um, I'd start with the marketplace. The, 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 I used a phrase earlier and being technologically neutral. Uh, and if you start, to, if you stand back and look over 20 odd years plus, um, 20, 30 years ago, the vast majority of scientific projects that would have been in the industry's pipeline, you know, would have been small molecule um, type projects. And, and you've seen there the industry become neutral to whether or not it's a small or a large molecule and then all of within that. Um, all, all of the different new technologies that are coming through. So we've got more approaches scientifically to throw at, at, at solving scientific problems. Um, and you can see it reflected in the industry, in the industry's pipeline. And in turn, you can see the services sectors, plus the, the, the actual biopharma companies themselves, change their capital deployment, build new capabilities, build new plants. Um, but we're not there yet. I still think that there is uh, an undercapacity in a number of the sort of biotech type um, areas for so small molecules. It's pretty well served there. It's around capability, competence, service levels. 
Um, actually, I think on the, the biosimilars and the antibody uh, side of manufacturing, there's space just for extra capacity to come online. We found that over the last couple of years, we've, we're a relatively new entrant. Uh, but we'll, with, with some modesty, Andrew, I'm delighted to be bracketed in the same category as some of the large Korean mega cap firms. But we, we're fairly clear in our own mind, we're forward integrating into this. We're a relatively new entrant. Where we are the same and where we can compete is we operate to the same level of innovation, the same level of cost of goods and the same regulatory standards. So we had two bellwether events in the last year. Our small molecule commercial manufacturing site received FDA approval and our biologics manufacturing site uh, I, I, I see, uh, received FDA approval when they're shipping drug substance into those markets. That tells you that we are equivalent. There's only one standard, which is world class, um, and we operate to the highest quality standards and we have the sort of endorsement and the regulatory audit of the FDA to, to back that up. That actually then leads to an element of differentiation. Well, one of the first supply points in India to have achieved that standard. And then with the Stellis acquisition, I, I, you said we'd recently uh, done that. Actually, we're in the process of completing that acquisition. It's not completely done yet. But what, you know, what, when it is done, it will bring on um, a, a more capacity in a market that has capacity shortages at a very competitive price point and with the endorsement of uh, the very highest levels of regulatory standards. So that really becomes the value proposition. New capacity, proven FDA track record, already manufacturing and supplying into those markets. And I think we're competitive. And there is an element uh, around the firm. We just try harder. We're very, very aware that we're a new entrant um, and that appeals to an awful lot of customers. That's that's really interesting. Uh, you know, if we can just take that bit a little further to some of the excitement we are seeing around new modalities, uh, both globally and at uh, Sinjin, where I believe, you know, uh, things are moving in that area as well. Uh, how well is Sinjin set up in areas like mRNA with its own platform? Does it provide increased yields, a cost edge or address aspects like thermostability, which is critical in, you know, some parts of, uh, I mean, especially in the emerging markets and things like that? Yeah, I, I'll I'll go a little bit, you know, to, to throw a sort of a, a number of those um, sort of new modalities. Um, we We largely match the evolution of those technologies through the sort of industry's value chain. And what I mean by that is um, we're pretty well set in in the discovery end. So research scientists in labs are working on the, you know, the discovery of things like CAR T's, uh, mRNA, uh, ADCs. And in the ADC space, we're sort of furthered through both in discovery and into development. So we we have each of the components. If you disaggregate antibody drug conjugate, we can do the antibody discovery, development and manufacturing. Uh, the, the small molecule discovery, development and manufacturing capabilities are there for the payload. And we have development conjugation capabilities. You put the three together, you have an ability to 
um, add value in all three elements of the discovery, development, and ultimately manufacture of an ADC. So we, but we we match the technology evolution in our clients. There's always two boundary conditions around innovation, or or or, or three, in fact. There's the front end blue sky academic uh, boundary. Where's the new knowledge coming from out of universities, out of academic groups? The next frontier is the early adoption of that in an industrial setting, formation of companies, creation of new um, you know, capabilities within our clients. And then the third frontier is often the service boundary, where you can start to get those same technologies, but on a service basis. Sometimes those three frontiers can be quite compressed. They're only years apart. Sometimes they can be decades apart. Look, for example, the conversation we just had about um, antibody discovery, development, manufacturing. First antibodies, uh, monoclonal antibodies would have been elucidated in the mid 70s, late 70s, the early wave of academic research. The first products that were making it to the market to treat patients would have been in the oh, late 90s, early 2000s. And here we are, you know, in 2023. And the service uh, element of that it, it is growing and booming and becoming a mainstay of the industry. So sometimes those frontiers and that technological uh, diffusion can be many decades long. Others times it's much shorter. And the key, of course, for us from a capability development, from a balance sheet uh, investment point of view, is to work closely with our partners, really see where the market's going, make sure we're developing. You don't want to be too far in front of your, your clients on the leading edge. You don't want to be a laggard. Can you get into that sweet spot? And I think we're managing to do that on uh, the monoclonal antibody side. And we're looking quite closely, as, as you said, CAR-Ts, mRNA, ADCs. Okay, so the, the ADCs bit is, you know, a huge talking point these days. We're seeing these huge deals, Diachimok most recently, then uh, I think even Amgen has this two billion deal with Cinefix. So a lot happening there. Is that an area that kind of can propel Synjin's earning stream going forward? I think it's a component of it, but um, yeah, and I, I tried to sort of allude to it uh, uh, at the beginning of the conversation. We're, we're a broad based, deeply seated, think of us as a technology platform company with capabilities that cover the full range of of what our uh, of what the market and what our clients want to access. So you don't bet everything on just one technology. It, it, it's it's a number of overlapping and uh, of technologies that allow us to serve a, a broad range of clients. So it's one of many. Protax is another area um, th that we've invested a lot of time in. We must have one of the largest discovery groups, I would have thought, in the industry. More than 400 scientists working every day in, in Protax. But that sits alongside the other technologies we've talked about, ADCs, mRNA, um, CAR-T and so forth. 
Okay. Uh, just you know, quickly, if I can, you know, pick your brains on this whole uh, excitement happening around the GLP-1 receptor agonist segment, uh, and we're seeing. Uh, I'm asking you this because you know some analysts see it as a 45 billion market translating into a 4 billion market for CDMOs, and you know some of your peers, Wuxi, is already well embedded there. Is that an area you'd be playing in, or, or is that for now? I, I, yeah, I think everybody's looking at it. Um... Again, you've got to remember that the, the there's a there's a time gap of almost a decade between um, in the industry between uh, the discovery first beginnings of a research project on GLP ones and products coming through to the market and the clinical data. So the excitement in the analyst community is about the next stage of revenue generation um, as we see GLP ones, particularly the weight loss um uh, aspects of that but from a discovery research the cro bit of of, of sort of Sinjin's business uh, that all that's 10 years ago you know that's uh, that, that's scientific archaeology rather than um uh, uh, you know what's going on in the marketplace so you've got you've got to keep those two things in mind um but yes i think on the cmo part the uh the manufacturing piece uh, everybody's looking at can they find a position? Can they find a partnership? Because it, it looks to be a growing, very large volume potential um, part of the of the industry. So, uh, if sticking with partnerships, I mean, Sinjin has these long-standing partnerships with uh, you know Amgen, BMS, among others, and you have companies, uh, and for both companies, you have dedicated facilities in the Bangalore campus run by Sinjin. Now, uh, if I can just pick a, you know, a little uh, aside that David Reese spoke about, you know, how the union of technology and biotech is driving insights into biology in a way that's kind of qualitatively different. So can you kind of outline how Syngene is at the CDMO, CRO level, embracing new technology, AI, maybe even gen AI across these aspects and moving more towards, are you also moving more towards immersive interactions with partners and clients using you know technologies like augmented reality metaverse where are we there now oh gosh i think yeah um many and all of those so if we start with the the, the last bit of your question and come back um it, it, it actually links to the very beginning of our conversation as you mentioned the pandemic one of the things that we did um is buy augmented uh, reality things like google glass uh, um, some of those technologies to allow our clients when when the world was in lockdown nobody could get on a plane how do you still make sure that you are um, uh, being able to do things like client audits quality audits operating reviews we did the same sort of thing with some of the regulators um, and you know our quality team now are quite well uh, versed in being the um, the avatar uh, for their client or their or the regulator walking around a lab, walking around a plant, using those video streaming technologies to allow them to remotely look at and inspect anything and everything. We, we, we culturally a very open book. I think that level of transparency really be, builds trust with your customers. So we're very happy if you want to sit in your lab in California and watch our scientists work in in labs in India through a live stream, we can enable that sort of thing. 
so those are on the periphery i mean but, but, but they they help very much build the relationship um coming out of science and just thinking of us as a big or relatively big organization of more than eight thousand people a, a bit like everybody else we're going to figure out um how do you use things like chat gpt to enable everyday working um can you can you get it to write a press release can you get it to write an article or a paper is the next presentation that somebody's going to be done ai augmented um and, and i think there's a lot of things um that we can we can do there we've got a number of pilots running for example in our legal team that they, they have a, a specialized version of a large language model that really helps them increase the speed and the accuracy of contract drafting um you, you can you you can sort of really increase the turnaround which has got an element of customer service how do we get to a master service agreements that often run for tens of thousands of pages can we get to those quickly and accurately um some of those ai enablement uh, tools are helping with that and then back into our own labs um one of the things to look at is just we generate a very large amount of scientific data manufacturing data development data we're, we're putting a lot of effort into organizing that storing it doing it in a way that um, keeps proprietary information proprietary but also allows us to do meta-based learning on that data set how can we organize our data in a way that allows the AI algorithms and the machine learning capabilities we have in the company, we have a dedicated group that does that um, and just build it inside. So, so I think rather than it becoming standalone, it's just going to become interwoven a little bit like, you know, the Internet has become. Nobody conceives of it as a separate thing. It's just part of the world of work. And we're looking to weave that into all aspects of the business, whether it's what we do in the finance department, what is what we do in the labs, what we do in discovery and development, how we take manufacturing data straight out of our batch records and, and learn from it. What can we do to optimize the parameters on a manufacturing uh, batch? And we're doing all of the things that I think many are trying to do. We're experimenting in that area um, and that then creates the learning loop that accelerates your whole business. So uh, clearly plenty of use cases and uh, plenty of potential there, I see. Uh, if I can shift tracks a bit uh, and, you know, just touch upon this consolidation that we've seen over the past few years in the CDMO space now. Uh, EY data shows that there's been between 2017 and 2021, there were 244 publicly announced M&A deals that involves CDMOs. And of these, you know, one third were related to novel modalities such as cell and gene therapies and novel nucleic acid therapies. Now, is Syngene open to big transformational deals, maybe something that mirrors parent Biocon's acquisition, or then even deals to, you know, diversify its manufacturing base? Because we've seen Korean firms like, uh, you know, Lotte Biocytes in the US, or, or then are you kind of going to go largely down the organic route? I, I don't think it's an either or. I, I I I wouldn't position acquisition necessarily as a as a strategy. 
It's just a tool of enacting a strategy. So you've got to go to the more fundamental question of what was driving the acquisition? Um, it, 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 was it to acquire a capability or a market position or scale or geographical breadth? And you need to go through each one of the 240 plus uh, deals that you, you alluded to and, and, and figure that out. Um, so we're, we're open to that, but I, I just see that as a way of taking the business forward, not the way. Um, economically and philosophically, we're neutral on whether we do things through an organic route or an acquired route or a partnership route. It's about fair value and creating both strategic and economic value for our shareholders over the long term. You have to know why you want to to pull the trigger on a particular way forward. Um, we, 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 tend, um, we tend to try and have a position that we get invited to look at all the assets that come up for sale. And if nothing else, I'd like us to have a reputation of being very quick at doing the due diligence and giving a clear yes or no to the potential vendor. Um, it just gets it, it just gets you invited to look at more deals if you can be effective, but you don't necessarily have to do everything you're asked to look at. So you have to weigh that up against the organic opportunities. We've done pretty well over the last uh, five and ten years. We've created a lot of shareholder value, a top line growth CAGR of high teens, 20 percent sustained for more than a decade since we went public. Um, an approximation of four times 400% increase in the value of the company, similar sort of increase in revenue, similar increase in scale and scope and headcount. Uh, and that's largely been done uh, organically, but not exclusively. We have done bolt-on acquisitions along the way. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll be open-minded on all of those things. Okay, so we'll keep an eye out for that then. Uh, uh, if I can just quickly touch upon some of the headwinds before we, uh, you know, move to the final queries, uh, we've seen, you know, the Ukraine war, and unfortunately, there's another one, the Israel conflict, you know, for, uh, following, and 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 I mean, it has, it's expected to have huge ramifications if things don't settle quickly. And uh, you touched upon this wider China plus one strategy. Now, yes. do you see all of this? nudging you know uh, biopharma to consider further de-risking of its supply chain or even looking at seriously looking at viable onshoring uh, are we seeing any marked shifts to india and our clients re-evaluating whether they need to have as many fte's in certain regions or is that more anecdotal no i think you're seeing active discussion of all of all of those things and that they sort of overlap on on the same central theme. So whether you get to it through the pandemic or whether you're thinking of geopolitical risk, what's in play for many, many companies at the moment is uh, how do we get work done? What's what's the resilience in our supply chain and our partnership model? How exposed are we to any particular geography or any particular partnership? And And I don't think the learning is that you know, in quotes, China bad, bring it home. I think it's overextension on any particular model leaves you stretched and not resilient. 
the same would be true if you, you when you talk about you know home shoring if you're already very very exposed operationally to your home geography home shoring even more is just doubling up on that all your eggs in one basket so uh, um i i think people are being more nuanced and thoughtful around it it's a um and and the other bit that, that we shouldn't lose sight of is um we used to think about the world as sort of whether it was the US and rest of world. Isn't it now most of world? You know, ROW has become MOW. So countries are companies are increasingly looking at, at how we at how they address the healthcare needs of a much broader geographical pop, uh, population distribution. And you seeing, you know, as you see the rise of economies, you see the rise of uh, of healthcare markets. Uh, India is a good example. The, the the size of the middle class that through self-pay markets can afford the very, very newest and most modern medicines. Um, you know, by population size is bigger than many European countries. So you've got to think global and you're seeing those those multi dimensions of it. So there's a bit about rebalancing supply chain uh, risk. There's a, a bit around the geopolitics and not being overextended in one geography. I should say, you know, there's some very good companies in China. It, it, it's not as if they're necessarily uh, leaving because they don't like the support and the service they get. They're just rebalancing to some very good companies in other parts of the world. And of course, I'd be biased in saying Sinjin is one of those and that it's a good opportunity for us. But I, I think you'll see uh, a, a steady flow of work coming towards India and I hope within that Sinjin. Uh, that's really interesting. So if I can now move to the final question and, uh, you know, what's the next big disruption you anticipate uh, in the CRDMO sector? I know this is a kind of <laughs> huge uh, blue ocean kind of question, but is there something that really, you know, uh, you think can change things dramatically? I, I, Andrew, in some ways, I think we just covered it. I think those those <laughs> trends of... Um, Look, you, you've got some wonderful technologies coming through. So d d during the conversations, we've talked about new modalities, whether it's CAR-Ts, mRNA, ADCs, oligonucleotides. So you've got new technologies coming through. Um, you've got globalization of demand. You've just got more people on the planet and everybody's demanding better health care. And the innovations are there. So you can connect the two. There are genuinely uh, reasons to believe that there's new new science coming through that can have a meaningful impact on healthcare. You've got the geopolitics. You've got a more heightened and a less stable geopolitical world than we've had, you know, for most of the last twenty years. You'd have to go back to almost my childhood and the Cold War to be in, a, in a, a, an era that's got the level of geopolitical change that we're seeing playing out. And you alluded to, you know, the challenges in Ukraine, we've got challenges in the Middle East and, and, and many more. Um, and then you've had a once in a generational, once in a hundred year event of, of a global pandemic, or at least I hope it's a once in a lifetime event, 
Uh, and that's taught us some things around overextension of an over optimization of supply chain, finding way through all of those things. And that's before we then overlay the the, the, the capital markets piece. The cost of capital has gone up. Interest rates have gone up. Uh, you've got a bit of a funding uh, dynamic funding gap in the biotech end of things, but deep pockets uh, 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 and, and good self-funding in uh, the the big biopharma companies, I think there's more than enough to go on there to say that, that, that there's that there's reasons to see change, and change often brings opportunity. So never a dull moment, and lots of exciting stuff happening. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for those interesting in insights and a peek into what to expect in the CRDMO segment. Thanks a lot. Thank you.